I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. Businesses, of course, face risk every day, whether from supply chain disruption, calamity, or as we've seen from a series of hurricanes over the last years, Mother Nature. But most of these risks have a foreseeable ending. After all, at some point, the hurricane passes. But among the many business risks during this COVID age are the unknown risks. How long will the pandemic endure? Which geographies will be hit hardest? What might recovery look like? And while the insurance business can account for many of the regular risks, COVID-19 brings a new, challenging dimension. So how are the insurance companies thinking about COVID? Perhaps more significantly, how can businesses measure, plan, and account for the risks they face? How should they think about the problem? Joe Coughlin is the one to ask. Joe is CEO and founder of Corporate Risk Solutions. With decades of experience in the consulting, advisory, underwriting, and brokerage segments of the insurance industry, he has seen virtually every kind of risk and understands what makes the current pandemic unique. Over that time, he has originated thousands of engagements and provided services for many of the largest and most intricate transactions within the private equity and distressed debt markets. Before my conversation with Joe, though, I have an ask from me to you. I hope you like these Working Capital Conversations. If so, I'd appreciate if you take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Joe Coughlin. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Chris, fantastic to be here. So a professional in the insurance business, I'm sorry for how slow things must be for you. How in the world do you pass your time, Joe? In, in many different ways. It's uh, every, every time the phone rings, uh, there's a, there's a different challenge, but we're in the problem-solving business, so uh, I could think of no better place to be. Well, there are plenty of problems. Um, I, ca- I can't imagine that uh, things have ever been much busier, but you'll tell me about that. Why don't we start first with, give me the overview. What is corporate risk solutions? Where do you fit in the insurance and business risk ecosystem? So we are a independent risk advisor that serves in the alternative capital space primarily. And by alternative capital space, I mean by normally people that have raised third-party capital, either through private equity funds, um, distressed debt funds, hedge funds, venture capital firms. But they've raised this third-party money from endowments and pension plans and wealthy individuals, et cetera. And they're deploying that capital and they're looking for superior rates of return. So we focused in that marketplace the most because it tends to be repeat business. If you're doing a good job for a particular sponsor, they're going to call you back on the next deal and the deal after that and the one after that. So you can have a very long you know, area or level of continuity with these clients. To the extent that you don't severely mess things up, they're willing to call you again. (laughs) Exactly. Now, do you work then directly with the sponsors? Do you work with portfolio companies to the extent that the sponsors with whom you're working um, are investing in specific companies? Do you work, how how does that work for you? In a perfect world where we, we start our relationship almost universally is at the sponsor side. So we're actually dealing with the fund. We're helping the fund assess their own risk. And that's normally in the form of general partnership liability. 
which is in, in, in terms that it's protecting the, the actual fund for all the things that they're doing while they're looking for deal flow or while they're assessing businesses to buy. And so when we start with that, the general partners quickly see that we, we really do understand the space and we understand what they're, what they're about. And I'm not trying to be smart here, but why do they need you? Why can't they do that themselves? Well, I can honestly say this. In 34 years of being exclusively on the private equity side of the house, meaning the sponsored business side, we have never met uh, a risk manager that has been able to have a grasp of what's going on in the marketplace. Hmm. If you're a, a risk manager and you, you happen to be in a private equity fund, you have between nine and 15 assets that you're possibly looking over at any given time. That might bring you into contact with multiple brokers, but for the most part, a private equity fund like that uh, is probably dealing with one or two, maybe three different brokers. And then those nine different portfolio companies, as they come up for renewal, you know, at various times of the year, that's nine or 15 different times that they're out in the marketplace. And depending on what kind of assets they own, if, you know, maybe they're in consumer products, maybe they're in real estate, maybe they're in you know, into some kind of energy silos or something like that. But it's, it's a finite view of what's going on in the market. What we are doing is by dealing with the breadth of clients that we have, which is, you know, some hundred plus funds uh, that are in every industry vertical. Wow. We're dealing with brokers all around the world in all of these different industry groups. And whether you say there's six primary or there's 14, you know, subset of business you know, silos, we're in with, with every one of them. And then we're dealing, you know, simultaneously with every relative underwriter, which brings you into the hundreds of underwriters that are around the globe. So you're really understanding both sides of the equation. You have to understand both sides of the equation. The thing that we believe in very firmly is that the, the client needs to be as close to the capacity as possible. And when mm. I say the capacity, I mean that that is the actual underwriter. That is the insurance company that is has entered into this agreement. What we're doing is we're, we're acting as this navigant. We're acting as this Sherpa guide by saying that this is what the marketplace looks like. Here are the carriers. Here are the underwriters. Here are the insurance companies that like your business. They are interested in this in your business. Not only that, they excel at writing this business. They're committed to writing it. They're not just going to come in this year and then next year that they're going to hammer you with the you know rate increase. They really like this business. So what we're trying to do is is to build partnerships so that will be sustaining. Now, if you are uh, the Sherpa, are you talk to me about the Mount Everest that I am assuming the business risk management world is today. Have you ever seen anything in the business risk management field like what we're seeing now? No, no, that's a, it, it, it's an emphatic no. So I've, I've been in the business for 40 years and I grew up in an insurance family um, and knew a lot of people that were in the insurance industry. And the last three hard markets that we had uh, prior to this one, um, which I'll get to in a second, were it was it was 1975 to 1978, 1984 to 1987, 
and 2001 to 2004. Yeah, tough times. Yeah. You know, if you go back into the last hard market cycle of, you know, 2001 to 2004, you know, that's when you were, you know, really, you know, starting to come off of, um, you know, Wilma. And uh, well, actually, when you get into 2005 and 2006, you know, you had Wilma, Katrina and Rita and all of those things. All of the hurricanes. Yes. All of those. Now, the property pricing bumped up for a little while, but then it went right back down, you mm. know, in, for a really a 14 year period of time. That then finally got hit again in 2017 with the worst catastrophic claims in, in recorded history. And that was about $135 billion was recorded in the third quarter of 2017. But it still took another two years. So it was really in September of 19 that we started to see the pricing really firm. And that was because a lot of the reinsurance treaties started to expire. And just refresh my memory, what occurred in that quarter in 2017? It was a culmination of a whole host of things, but it was really, you know, Sandy, Harvey, Irma, Matthew, Maria, those just on the hurricanes alone. I think that uh, really it just got to the point that, and there was other factors. There's, you know, I don't even want to say extenuating circumstances. I would say that they are just circumstances that directly correlate to the industry because, mm. you know, the reality is while this may be, a, you know, a gigantic industry when you take all the players that are involved in it, the reality is that when an insurance dollar comes into an insurance company, it, it sits there. And then depending on what happens with the claims, during the course of the year, the insurance company has to post reserves. The other thing is that insurance companies are the largest buyers of you know, fixed income instruments. You know, mm. They are big government bond buyers. They have to put their, their dollars into very prudent investments. And um, those prudent investments don't have very, uh, very good rates of return, as you can imagine. And as you well know right now, we're in the lowest interest rate environment ever. And... Um, then you're looking at a stock market that fluctuates around, you know, it goes from highs to lows in a matter of weeks, you know, if not months. And so there's, there's really, well, and then you take, you know, things that have happened litigation wise over the last few years, you've got these social justice claims that are, that are taking place. You've got the changes that took place in regulatory side. You know, you had the GDPR, which is Europe's answer to to regulation on privacy. And then that's followed by what California did, which is leading our country, which is the CCPA, the California Consumer Protection Act. And those are privacy things that now affect directly affect employers. And then the employers are insuring these potential fines or transgressions. So you have this culmination that all came down the pike at the same time. And it, it, after this sustained 14-year soft cycle, uh, the insurance company said, that's it. And once the, once the retrocessive market, which backs up the reinsurance market, which backs up the insurance carrier market, yep. dried up, then all of a sudden the capacity, the price to rent the balance sheet of an insurance company went through the roof. So right now we are absolutely, positively, and, I, and I'm not shy about saying this, because people say, you know, it's a bad market, but this is the worst market in 40 plus years, without a doubt. And now, what does COVID do? <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, COVID is is uh, is the icing on the cake. Here's my answer on on COVID. I and I, <laughs> it's it's hard to say, right? Mm. There is speculation that COVID uh, on the on the one side, it's estimated that it could cost the industry fifty six billion dollars. On the other side, of just COVID alone, just COVID alone. Uh, on the other side, it says that COVID could cost the industry some five hundred and fifty six billion dollars. And, and you well, that's a, that's it. Yeah. Explain that to me. Cause that's a, that's a massive range, obviously. So yeah, that, you know, if, if anyone said, did, did somebody, their treasurer, you know, or a CFO, yeah, yeah. Just something for me and they came back with that. I don't think they would last too long. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're really good, Joe. That is a lot of years in the industry to be able to narrow it down to just 500 billion uh, range. <laughs> that's, that's true. Okay. But, but there must be, there's a why behind that. Tell me the why. Well, the why is there's, there's really two components of COVID, right? One is that there is this healthcare side, which clearly um, that that is the really the easiest part to see, because, you know, there's all these models that are out there. And and by the way, if every single day that you open up the newspaper or you hear on the news, there is a new announcement on what's going on with COVID. You know, do the antibodies survive for longer than 36 days? Well, it used to be the antibodies would last for years, if not forever. Right. So getting the true facts out to a public on a new disease is is very hard. But what we do know is that for those patients that do contract the disease, if they do not have, you know, if they don't go into an intensive care unit, then the average cost that they're seeing as of right now exceed about $11,000 per patient. If you go into the ICU, it could be as high as $35,000. And that doesn't include, you know, any short-term disability that may be provided in there. So by capitizing the number of people, if we had 10% of the population that contracted the disease, then that has its own math. If it went up to 20%, then it has its it, an, another math. And if it goes up to what people have said is the worst case scenario, which would be 60%, you know, when it was thought that what, what is herd immunity? Well, right. at first herd immunity was 70%. Then it went to 60. We're now hearing as of last night. Yes, I saw. It was like herd immunity might be as low as 20 to 40%, right? So it depends on really what's happening. But, but the reality is that the healthcare side is, is, is easier to see right now than than the property and casualty side. And when I say property and casualty, I mean really everything else other than healthcare. So explain that to me. I understand why healthcare, X number of people are going to get sick. There's going to be an average of Y amount of cost per person. I, I, I get that math. Why so much unknown on all the rest of it? What might be all the rest of the potential claims? And why is it a gray area? Right. And, and there, there's where, you know, you can't say the icing on the cake, right? Um, where you can say it could be, you know, a, uh, it could be the cake itself. Mm. Um, be, while we're talking about all these things that, you know, ESG is, you know, environmental, social and governance types of things. And as we just got done talking about the social justice type of things. Yeah. Um, no one really knows because it, it, we're seeing a lot of things that were never intended to happen are happening now. And that rules are, you know, uh, being changed. And, you know, 
meaning abilities for businesses to stay open, not stay open, who can be where, what types of transactions can take place. Do you mean those types of different rules changes? I think people are really, really trying to grasp, you know, and grapple with the fact of, of what is fairness. Mm. And when you have hundreds of thousands or, you know, make that millions of people that are either out of work or are wondering about their future, you know, status with work, or they've been working, you know, at restaurants, or they've been working at, you know, stores. I mean, let's face it, you know, if 80% of the uh, economy is driven by small business, then those small businesses have been affected. And, you know, the speculation is that it's a loss of some $225 billion to $450 billion a month. In yeah, a loss. month. A month, right? That is That is no longer going into into the general economy, right? And so if you have enough people that are saying somebody's got to pay for this, right? And because you, you thought you were buying insurance, right? Now, insurance thought it was pretty clear. The insurance companies, they looked and they said, well, after SARS, you know, came about in 2006, they said, wait a minute, there is no way that we can offer insurance for a pandemic, you know, and communicable diseases, you know, it's just, it's, it's anathema to being in business. And, and I, and I really do thank uh, Evan Greenberg who runs, um, who runs Chubb uh, and he's been a, a, a longtime friend, you know, way back when he was at AIG, but Evan just, you know, brought it right back to light when he said that the thing about property and casualty is it's defined by, it's defined by uh, time and geography. Mm. And, and by that, I, I mean that if you take a, a major storm, if you take a hurricane and it, right. it comes up from, you know, the, um, the Caribbean and it comes and it, and it hits Florida and it lets you say it's a category five storm and it goes all the way up to Maine. It's defined by time. And it might might take, you know, a week. Right. You know, At some point it ends. It ends. Right. And it's defined by geography. Yeah. Right. Because it, it eventually <laughs> it eventually moves on and leaves. But it and, it and it dies. But take I don't care if it's a typhoon. I don't care if it's a earth, earthquake. It's a wildfire. But there is a degree of time and there's a degree of geography. But in a pandemic, as we are seeing right now, there is no time limit, you know, left unto itself. And there's no geographic limit so that for an insurance company to say that we are going to underwrite this these losses for business interruption is, you know, they said, no, we can't do it. So in some cases, the policies actually provided some coverage because they wanted to make it simple enough to say, uh, we'd rather offer you very, very little, but offer you a, a, a coverage, but show that it ends here rather than say there is no coverage and argue about it. Has that question been litigated? Have businesses, you know, gone and said, well, you know, I, you were my insurance company. A bad thing happened. Uh, I thought I was insured. You know, what do I have you for? And the insurance company says, I, I, you know, you had me for, you know, A through Z, but not this thing that has no time and geographical boundaries. Um, is there a litigation status on that or, or that's the... There's a lot of litigation status. There's, there, there hasn't been that much in terms of, you know, uh, you know, where it's been adjudicated. But what we do know is there's some 450 ongoing or at least filed lawsuits as of this point in time. 
Wow. There are a whole host of class action lawsuits that are uh, saying that this is a business interruption and an indemnifiable business interruption. Uh, Texas, um, as of right now, there was a Liberty Mutual case where they have uh, stood by the carrier in their ruling. But just last week, Missouri allowed uh, some hair salons and some restaurants to proceed uh, with their suit, alleging that the physical damage actually applies to their countertops. Now, normally in business interruption, there clearly has to be direct physical damage that took place. So remember when, when COVID first came out, everyone was saying, but there, there, I couldn't get to my, my place of employment. I couldn't get there. It was closed. This is one of these things that it was like, well, it's a, um, it's, it's pandemic. It is, yeah. uh, it is a communicable disease and there is no coverage for that. So what's, what's being argued now is, um, you know, will, will, uh, and by the way, uh, Louisiana, Massachusetts, New York, Ohio, and Pennsylvania are now looking into, into doing the same thing and saying that this is, this is what, what's going on here. I personally would have to think that uh, my money would be on the insurance companies because it is contractual law. And uh, unless somebody is going to backstop, you know, all of these insurance companies, because there's only so much money that can go around, right? Yep. And, and as big as the industry is, and whether it's $20 trillion in assets, you know, those that $20 trillion is already tied up in reserves. And it's already tied up in interest rate, you know, low interest rate, you know, returns that, um, you know, one year, uh, the industry would be bankrupt. Yeah, what a challenge. What I'm sure you are shy of making any type of prediction on anything except but for the idea that this very well could end up uh, in the Supreme Court at some point. Yeah, I, I definitely think it goes to the Supreme Court. Yeah. And what you're seeing right now is that already they're modifying these, these policies, and these coverages. You know, there were those that went out and bought coverage for this. And mm -hmm. you know, Wimbledon is probably the best example of it. But Wimbledon for the last 14 or 16 years has been buying, well, since SARS. So 14 years, they've been buying, you know, uh, pandemic coverage in yeah. the event that Wimbledon was going to be canceled. And, and not cheap. It's not cheap insurance. No, it's not. I think it was like a, 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 a million uh, five uh, pounds a year. Uh, they, I think they, the number is in U.S. dollars. They put in some 31 plus million dollars over the years to buy this. Right now, they're looking, from what I've read, is that they're looking to collect, you know, $142 million on this. And you'd say that, and absolutely, and you, and you should. Um, uh, but, you know, there's tens and tens of thousands of people that never bought that. Yeah. But now what you're going to see is that policies are going to clearly now, I mean, they're going to be get far, far more restrictive in what they will do and what, they, what they'll put out there. And so, you know, at, you know, what happens, I, you know, at the end of all of this, um, it, it's just, just just question marks everywhere. Yeah. And that's where I mean, that's where risk really comes down to it. People have to think. And I and, and I think that every business has really got to the point that you have to say, what is the worst case scenario? And, and, and what do we do? You know, if there's some kind of systemic you know, change that takes place. What are businesses calling you about now and what are you telling them? Yeah, well, I, right now there is there there has been for 
April, May, and June in particular, we had a lot uh, more people calling specifically regarding COVID. And I'm not going to say that's not going to stop, um, and it, but it, it's, it started to, I, I think they were getting a lot of conflicting information. And, you know, I'm not looking to get into any battles with any, you know, law firms or anything, but they were, I, I think maybe for some places they were, you know, uh, providing hope where there maybe shouldn't have been as much mm-hmm. hope. So people were exploring options as to what the realities were. Um, but right now, the, our main business is is trying to help our clients stave off the effects of what was the hard market before COVID, and that hard market is still with us. There is a there is a scarcity, you know, a dearth of a capacity that's out there. You know, uh, these carriers, you know, have a finite balance sheet, and they are very selectively. They are renting that balance sheet out to, you know, a client base that they feel that they can, you know, like, again, partner with for a few years and that they feel as though they can get, collect a a justified amount of money for a risk that they're taking, you know, on and um, that that both parties, you know, feel good in the process. So is there a situation, are, are businesses in certain cases having trouble getting insured because there's just not a, a market to insure something? Oh, yes, very much so. And, and what's that doing to their business? How, how can how can a business go forward uh, without insurance backing it up? It, it, it's, it's, it's extremely difficult. And it, depending on, you know, what business that you're in um, and what types of margins, I, I think everybody, at, by and large, I always think that you want to be in a business that you're getting 30 plus you know, per, you know, uh, percent in a margin, right? Reality is, you know, uh, some make a lot more than that and some don't make close to that. But whatever your profit margin is that, that keeps somebody in business, you know, you're looking for a return. You know, you're, you normally just don't go into a business just to tread water. But if you now have to start passing on those increased prices, you know, if you are in the restaurant business or you're in the transportation business, and, you know, transportation business is a commodity business. You know, it's separated by, you know, a half a penny depending yeah. on, you know, the miles driven. And now you have to start to increase your pricing um, because your insurance costs more, uh, you know, across the board. Uh, and look, you're going to self-insure. You're going to do whatever you possibly can. But at a point in time, you know, there's certain things that you do have to provide for. And, you know, cyber liability, things that, that could really knock you out. Uh, you've got to you've got to have these, um, these these business plans for. But if you start to pass that on to the consumer, everyone's sitting there saying, "Well, geez," and and that it, it makes the that the flow of you know that that client go someplace else. So there's there's real ramifications of this. So what we're trying to do is um, is do what we've always done, and that is to act as a fiduciary for the client and to be able to say, "Okay, what do you got?" You know, what concerns you? What where where do you stand right now? What have you been told? And now we'll what we'll do is either one, if if you're dealing with a, a company that is really well prepared and really well represented, both by their insurance companies and by their brokers, we might just be simply giving a good housekeeping seal of approval saying there is nothing more to do here, or you can tweak this around the margins. But more often than not, we're finding that there's a, a bunch of rocks that haven't been, you know, overturned. 
or looked under, and we're providing options that that haven't been seen before. And that it, the client just can't know that. They're just not ever going to know that. And the only way they can do it is they got to put their program in competition with another broker. And that sometimes becomes, you know, um, uh, a real, uh, a real pain. I, I'm trying to choose. Yeah, I, I understand. Yeah, that, that, that can never, that, that can never be fun. Um, but, but you're describing a process that feels like it's, uh, it could be potentially as integral to business success as any operational efficiency. Absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 something that um, it, it's something that a, a, a client and, it, and I'd say like, look, uh, it's not just us. You know, I know that there's other you know firms that are out there, but you you, you need to know it's something that clients you don't you don't need to do it every year um, necessarily, especially if you're if you're you know working with an advisor. Uh, you want to be able to though say, are we really doing? Is it best practices, right? Uh, best practices, you need to know what your competition's doing. You need to what, know what the market is doing. And um, it's a big, big market. I mean, there's hundreds of insurance companies that are out there. Yeah. And that at any given point in time, somebody is going to be saddled with legacy claims that it's trying to run off that book of business, you know, until it could get back on its feet in a particular product line. And yeah. that means that new capacity. And and by the way, that's, that's the thing we really haven't touched on. The reason that this market started to drive up, drive up uh, to the way it is today is the fact that, that the capacity drive uh, dried up and that we were, we were not getting the private equity firms and the hedge funds that were coming in that were feeding these green shoot, you know, new companies, new insurance companies that, you know, had come up in the eighties and the nineties and, and even in the early two thousands. So, we're starting to see a couple, you know, that are out there. And with that new capacity, once they realize that um, interest rates start to firm up a little bit, and once people start to think about there's some stability in the stock market, and once interest rates start to rise a little bit more, and once there's a little bit better feel on the litigation side of the house, where people could start to feel a little bit more comfortable, that, you know, uh, that this is, you know, the way courts will rule and, uh, and there's not as much of a, um, uh, you know, like a, a, a uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. Then we will see it. And I know that sounds like it's like, oh, that's too feel goody. But reality is it does. And it will. It will come back. I have no doubt about that. Because I, I personally, if I was sitting there with hundreds of millions and billions of dollars, would I right now be putting money into some very seasoned professionals, some underwriting teams that come out of some of the best insurance companies in, uh, in, in the world and, and saying, I want to underwrite this line. I want to underwrite this, you know, this product line. I want to be a little of this, a little of that. And I put those teams out and I said, here's my balance sheet. Now let's go to work. Yeah, I would. I definitely would. And you would be able to pick up some fantastic business, which right now, can't move. It can't move because there is no market. Joe, to to to, to close things, um, we we've talked about it, 
some incredibly important uh, topics, um, the, the capacity challenge, COVID, the hard markets, the um, pending or the existing lit- litigation and the pending outcomes, the, uh, the uncertainty. Um, but I, I feel I really should end this with what has to be the pertinent question, which is, why did you put Eagle Scout in your bio on your website? I put it for a, a reason that I put it because is scout oath, scout law, but, you know, trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. The word fiduciary is, you know, when you engage a third party to act on your behalf as, you know, in, in this case, a subject matter expert on insurance and on risk, then we have to, we have to act as the fiduciary. And as an Eagle Scout, I felt as though that that should, and I believe it does, it's it it sends a message that you are you know something more that you strove to be something more in that regard and it doesn't mean that you're not going to tick off people from time to time and it doesn't mean you're not going to push them but it does mean that there's a level of fairness and there, but there's a there's a level of trust and honesty that has to that that has to be involved here so that's the part that we we just like to think that it differentiates the way that we're going to act and the way that we're going to communicate with with our clients and the people that we're working with whether that be broker underwriters or wholesalers or, you know, excess surplus lines underwriters, whatever that's out there, um, it's it doesn't have to be this hard if everybody was really doing the right thing. Doing the right thing, and uh, I would, I would, I can only imagine how good your former scoutmaster would feel if uh, uh, hearing you reel off the list of Eagle Scout oaths or words to live by, whatever it was that you just gave, like, you know, 27 words in about five seconds, but, but it's it's, 12, it's, but the fact that you still have it just imprinted, uh, in your mind, uh, and, and it sounds like in how you, uh, seek to carry yourself, uh, in your business every day. Joe, thank you. Thank you for, uh, taking the time and for enlightening us on, uh, what's happening in this, uh, business insurance risk world. Um, which seems like it could not get crazier, but I bet no one would insure me against that bet. So let's just say it, it, if, it, if we think it can't get crazier, it probably will. Well, it, thanks, Chris. It really has been a pleasure. 